Podcast, the book club podcast that always brings the pasta salad, which is the ultimate in party or potluck side dishes, to the lamb roast. We will never forget mm-hmm. pasta salad. Macaroni salad's a good substitute. We'll use the curly noodles. We'll make sure it's well-dressed and not soggy. I hate a soggy pasta salad. It's a nitpick of mine. Agreed. Any preferences mm-hmm. in your pasta salads? I like the um, the twirlies that are multicolored. Yes, the multicolored, it, you can almost taste it, though you know it has no taste. Yeah, exactly. It's a nice little <laughs> mental sensory trick having the tri... Isn't it usually tricolor? Yeah. Yeah, the tricolor pastas in there. If you're unsure why we're talking about pasta salad and lamb roast, that is because <laughs> you have encountered a book club episode. These are analytical deep dive episodes where myself, Travis, and my co-host, Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Hello. We will be discussing a book, a memoir this time. The first half of it specifically, we take our book club episodes and we cut them in half. So today on this Friday, we are doing part one of the uh, food memoir, Blood, Bones, and Butter by Gabriel Hamilton. And then you can find part two up next Friday. So we've divided that book in half. I believe we're covering chapters one through nine today. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so today we'll be discussing chapters one through nine of that memoir in depth. We are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and on Instagram at those handles, all one word, the Lightly Literary Podcast, so follow us there. We promote mostly on Instagram, but they go up on Facebook too, so we're up on both. Check us out. Also, find us on any podcast platform, wherever you found us is fine. Rate, leave us a rating and a review. Tell your friends, etc. Spread the good word of books as we head into the summer. I think it's reading season. Is this a beach read? Amanda it could be I think it's not overly heavy to to the point where you feel like you have to get notes out necessarily this is hitting my what I want out of a beach read which is I don't think it's particularly dense or that self-serious but it's also kind of caustic at times and really intense too so it's in it's a fascinating Mm -hmm. kind of combination of things which we'll get into in a bit as i mentioned this is an analytical deep dive a book club of this food memoir which i chose amanda what was the prompt you gave me for this one um i i prompted you to choose a food memoir genre book (laughs) which is very vast my immediate thought because i'd never read it was to pick kitchen confidential i know anthony bourdain from his tv shows the late anthony bourdain i should i should clarify i guess and i knew him from his tv shows and his reputation as kind of a i don't know chef of the people of a sort kind of a pragmatic witty almost kind of bitter guy but like kind and bitter he wasn't angry he was just sort of had an open eye about the world and he was never above Mm -hmm. i think he kind of made it on he was always willing to to go anywhere and eat anything very open-minded kind of guy and so that often led him i think to the lower end of of cooking rather than the high i don't think he was interested in a 500 hundred dollar plate anyway so long-winded way of saying i know him well his reputation but i don't know it felt too obvious to pick his book even though i really wanted to and I was found this online by doing some Googling, researching popular food memoirs and all that. He also said this is the best food memoir ever written. So <laughs> when I saw that quote from him, I thought, well, I guess we're getting kind of both. We get his stamp of approval and we get to read something that just is not that book. We broaden our scope. Do you want to speak briefly, because you mentioned this to me last time we spoke, that you took a class on food memoirs in college, which shocked me. Do you want to mention your own history with food memoirs or any any tips or advice on reading them? Um, so, uh, yeah, I, t- I took it 
when I was doing my master's program because I was like, I had never even heard of the genre before taking mm-hmm. that class. So I was like, oh, I, I definitely want to know what this is like. And we read a lot of, um, at that at the time that I took it, because this was back in like 2011 yeah. or 12 yeah. even. So it was like still not a, a huge genre that a whole lot of people knew about. So right. it was just... It's really interesting. It is a memoir, so it is nonfiction. But what's interesting is the language and the the scenes, I suppose, center around discussions of like how food is important to people's lives mm-hmm. yeah. and like how food is like um like a social so a way of socializing. And also some of the books in other food memoirs, if you encounter them, they actually include recipes. Yes. Um and yeah. it's recipes that are like comfort food for the the author that's the time so it's, it's interesting i've heard of too i can see why this book would not just because in a way i think the food she maybe appreciates most is very elemental and almost recipe less if that makes sense mm-hmm. i think she would yeah. admire just getting a good loaf and stabbing it into some good butter or you know jam or you know just some or leftover chicken drippings or something it's not i don't really think she's looking to make hyper technical 30 ingredient things. I don't think that would be right. in this book anyway from the from what we've read of it so far. So that's the pick. If you're sticking with us through now, then we're prepared to spoil the book, talk about the first half, etc. I think we've laid that out pretty well. Let's get to the book club proper then, Amanda. We begin our part one book clubs always with surprises, which can be pleasant or otherwise. So let's start there. Amanda, what was a surprise from the first half of uh, Blood, Bones, and Butter? For me, the, the big surprise was the, the lamb roasting, as in these full-sized the baby lambs mm-hmm. on skewers over an open pit mm-hmm. <laughs> like i had never heard of that before i knew that i mean i've seen cartoons and i've seen you know we're, we're in the south so like i've seen pigs on skewers not yes. that i've actually gone to one of those i've actually never been to one of those things right um right. but i hadn't thought that I hadn't thought of other animals doing it just because I, I feel like I haven't heard of it or seen it before. And the way that Hamilton describes these baby lambs, it's really normal to her, which and it's not at all disturbing despite she's 11 at the time of the memory. Yeah, and it yeah. just seems like super normal to her. And I was just like, if I were 11 and I saw that, I would be like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> She's very at home in the kind of mom and pop butcher store in her small hometown. Yeah. It's very, it's a very rural upbringing. That's for sure. And I think that's where you'll get into some of these bigger cooks, these bulkier, bigger, you know, cooking. Like I grew up around people who butchered their own cows or had a cow, an entire cow butchered for them that they would then freeze. But I don't, I don't really have much of a memory either of seeing, you know, lambs, like the scene you can pull your quote, but like strung up, you know, and being ready to be carved and everything and butchered. Yeah. Yeah. Unfamiliar to me. Um, From page 11, the quote is, uh, the baby lambs with their little crooked sets of teeth and milky eyes were slaughtered and dressed up at Maresca's butchers, then tied onto 10 foot poles made of ash because the branches of an ash tree grow so straight that you can skewer a baby lamb with them easily. Everyone knows that. Yeah, everyone knows Tree that. facts. That's just a tree fact everyone would know. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was surprising to me. It's just the fact that she was 11 years old and not even like a cook at that point, right? Mm-hmm. And I know that it's like her looking back at an 11-year-old her, but like 
she didn't freak out and and I would definitely in her place blood of any sort just makes me actually almost pass out so. I'll get to this in a later <laughs> segment but I'll allude to it now since it's relevant to what you said it's just true clear from the outset that she had a rather unstructured childhood and that informs yeah. i think a lot of her personality or something and that that kind of mm-hmm. has to do with this too i think the way her parents raised her they did not want her hermetically sealed in any habit or behavior or understanding of of the world so it, it would stand mm-hmm. to reason then that her understanding of food is kind of like that too where it's it's she's not off put by that because she was living a pretty wild free you know not very contained life. So, you know, it's, it makes sense, for example, that her understanding of chicken is having to cut off the head rather than just picking up a styrofoam pack at the grocery store and, you know, all very desensitized looking and very clean and industrial. So. And the her <coughs> excuse me, the horrific way she destroyed that chicken, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not the most effective butcher, I don't think. She, she admired nope. and kind of from afar appreciated the butcher, but yeah, didn't seem to have the skill, the knack for it tortured the bird she tortured it yeah yeah brutal my poor bird my surprise is a bit more generic but i think it fits too i'm i was just surprised by the tone of this book and specifically the way it likes to she likes to juxtapose things in her writing it's the book feels really raw and kind of earthy to me which i think fits with just her life i know i commented to you before i think in a previous episode we were recording i said this but i'll say it again here it's just a good reminder of why i could never write a memoir or at least if i were to there would be so so much embellishment in it or something i'd really have to dream up some things or really dig deep into my memory to come up with the best stuff because it's her philosophy and the way she writes her approach to life it seems like we, it, it's very clear that her mother was kind of a French person of of higher, maybe even elemental taste, and her father was an artist too. An example of right. this is on page twenty three at the bottom. I'll, I'll pull a short quote from this one. Like the way she speaks about kind of the senses, right? Of, of food is of which food is a you know the highest experience of senses. Maybe it says that she left this farm and inhaled as deeply as I could the stink of the farm and the cow shit that lingered on our skin. I still very much like that smell of manure. I like it in my food and my wine and even in certain body odor. That milk was so thick and shitty that the cream separated and rose to the top and we siphoned off three inches from every gallon of milk we brought home. My mom used a turkey baster to extract the cream and she kept it separate in a jar in the fridge. This entire errand she could run effortlessly in suede heels. And so there's... You know, they're living this kind of farm-based lifestyle connecting with the way food has to get processed and made. And that includes then, you know, she romanticizes even the smell of shit, which is such a growing up. I, I didn't grow up on a farm by any means, but we had to we were surrounded by farmland in Wisconsin. And the smell of manure off coming off a of farm is that's the potent stuff. That's toxic material. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but I could see I mean, the smells of your childhood always get romanticized, I guess. They always get stuck in your in your memory bank. So it's she takes those things and marries them well and then of course the image of her mother in the suede heels and there is kind of a perfect combination where i think she has some sensibilities that come off as maybe highbrow i mean it's pretty clear that her she has a very particular sense of what cuisine should be but also wants Mm -hmm. to present it in a way that's also pretty basic and rooted i guess so yeah i i I guess i was just surprised i mean chefs uh, you should never be surprised at the way they think about food they dedicate their whole lives to it they think a lot about what makes food appealing but i guess just the tone of it was a bit more 
I don't know. I want to say like aggressive, but I don't think she's an aggressive person per se. I it, just the tone of it is a little more intense than I expected. Yeah, she's <clears throat> some of her and and one of the quotes that I pulled up too is like it shows some of the aggressive aggressive I think is an appropriate word not that she herself is aggressive mm-hmm. but her tone is aggressive and her opinions about food are very aggressive. Oh, yeah. yeah, we'll get and, to that and the too. way and people's relationship with food. Yep. Um so yeah, I think aggressive is a good one. And like the the milk imagery too, I I I enjoyed it, but then like when she says the milk was so shitty, I was just like mm, coming off I... of the coming off of the manure is very confusing. It's it hard to yeah, not take literally. I'm just like ah, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. not a good image in my mind. Yeah. Hard to not take literally, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> she has the habit, and she brings this up, she makes a point to repeat this, that she can swear. I don't find her writing to be too inundated with the cursing, but it does show up for sure. She uses it to kind of to strike a tone, yeah. I think, but it's apparently something that in her kitchen she deploys. This is actually a perfect segue. I'm going to steal this as a segue then to go to the next section and start it. The next thing we're going to talk about is the Please Continue Make It Stop segment, where we're going to praise one thing and then critique one thing about the work so far. I'm going to start with my Make It Stop then, because this does have to do with her tone. I think that some of her attempts to be like acerbic and kind of stinging do come across as insensitive, bitter, and even I think frankly boring sometimes. Like it makes the writing kind of, she loops back to a couple ideas that I just don't think are that funny or interesting or that, I mean, they're meant to be, I think a bit biting, but they just don't seem that way. A couple Mm -hmm. examples I can talk through. In the most recent part of the book, when she's opening her prune, the New York restaurant, she's really obsessed with that Brazilian man's weight. And she keeps saying 240 pounds, like she picked a number and just kept at least two or three times. She just kept bringing that up. And now granted, yeah. he's a shirtless man. He's annoying her. He's, he's obviously overstepping personal. Like he shouldn't just be hanging out in the door of a restaurant's rude for sure. But to, to keep circling in on that, it was also a number that brought me personal shame as I've seen that number in my lifetime. So as a personal anecdote, <laughs> I was like, Oh man, okay. <laughs> That's a bummer, but fair enough. But anyway, it just like the, to, to circle it's, when you go with something that's specific, right, the specificity of that feels, I think, meant to be funny, I would assume, but it just, I don't know. It, I get that he was glistening with sweat and that's an image, but then to keep harping on it just felt like, well, you're just trying to be a bit mean-spirited now, which, you know, go for that, I guess, in your writing. The other quick example I'll mention is on 105. I think I have a quote for this one. This is when she was in graduate school, the, the writing school, and I... She is. She does not treat those people very kindly, which is fair enough. I think their personal, the way they comported themselves was not to her liking, and she just didn't get along with a lot of those people, which is fair enough. But I think there are some quotes here where the, it was when they did the reading out loud, and, and the metaphor comes like pecans. It's a simile, but whatever. Fair enough. Uh, knuckles wrinkled and browned like toasted pecans. And then there, somebody says, you have pierced my soul. And then her response is, oh, fuck, I think to myself, trapped in this girl's living room in this middle state, in this middle of my crossing, now totally convinced that the route I've chosen is wrong. I will have to survive one more year of this if I want to walk away with the master's degree from the Harvard of the Midwest. And then there's, she talks about the food there, and it's kind of this pathetic offering. And people go on, truly, simply perfect, and that, you know, they're glowing about the writing. So there's a couple things Mm -hmm. here. She she falls victim of t- what I'm going to now call the Stephen King like fallacy, where it's it's clear in her writing that she benefited from at least some form of formal education in writing. Now she might not have liked her degree program; that's perfectly fine. 
But then to criticize a line like that, to pluck that one, also, frankly, I thought that was a really evocative line. I, it's kind of like when King, remember when King in that short story brought up that literary story that he then made fun of? And again, maybe this right. is my own mm-hmm. sensibilities being teased at here. But when he chose some lines in there, I was like, some of that writing was quite good. Yes, some of it was also overwrought for sure. But th- this was a line, too, where she settled on it as, as sort of this emblematic moment of their failures as a people to understand the world, connect to the world, write about the world. I just thought, like, that's a pretty good simile, actually. That's, like, really mm-hmm. – cr- it's really crunchy. It's really earthy. And I just thought, like – and it adds a bit of a flavor to something that shouldn't have flavor, you know, literally. I was just like, man, that's – okay. That That's the moment when you realize they were all, you know, my uh, misanthropic hacks – not having any insight, like, that's a pretty good line. (laughs) And so, I don't know, I just think she tries to overdo it sometimes in terms of critiquing and kind of being acerbic about her experiences at times. And so I thought, again, I think her experience there, she wrote it well, and I understood by the end why she was bristling against that program so much, especially when she had that friendship with the other caterer. I thought that was a really nice kind of break Mm -hmm. in the book or whatever is becoming a long-winded digression but the point being i i think sometimes the tone and the attempts to attack or something feel a little bit they feel a little bit reaching and then again there are times there's even been some insensitive comments in in there too about people's intelligence and i guess that that'll depend on your own personal sensitivities and whether how you find that language but yeah it hasn't always worked for me how about do you find the tone how do you find the tone i guess yeah, sometimes um, when she's being um, mean or mean-spirited or if she's uh, trying to make a point about, like, her own opinions about things, she comes off as a little arrogant. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Um, like, so the, the scene that you just described, I actually pulled um, that same scene for one of my, my quotes, the, the cocktail party quotes. Um, oh, yeah. And... In, in that particular scene where she's talking about like the the person's simile, I was like, I enjoyed that simile. I, th- I like that kind of imagery and stuff like that. She uses imagery as well. Yeah, she uses yeah. these things, but she's just relating it to food instead of anatomy, right? So right, it's right. it it seems like uh, I don't know. It's it's like sometimes it it almost is like she has. Uh, and she pointed out um, as well earlier. Um, at one point she's, she talks about how like at her age, um, when she was learning these things, she could not, um, accept that she was learning something from somebody else. She was so intent on doing things her own way and like making her own. So it's hard for her to accept help and to admit when she's like learning something from somebody else. And I think that in in a long lens kind of way she still is <laughs> doing mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. same thing yeah. um so yeah i that kind of stuff and like the the brazilian man too i that also bothered me because i was like oh is she gonna bring this back up is he gonna be like some kind of like food critic later where he comes in and is like dissing her food or something like i yeah. don't what it, I just didn't see the point in that. I think if that yeah. was meant to be sort of a plague of locust type thing where there were so many... New York is such a, p- a pile-on city, and there were so many people around her, tenants annoyed by her. Like they, At some point, there's a joke or a writing bit in there where she basically points out all directions of a compass and is like, and our northern neighbors, and our northwestern neighbors, and our southern... And you know, she goes on about how there's complaints from every angle. Every tenant is annoying. Yeah. And so I think she was just trying to make a more general point about... 
Yeah, just about having the irritants of opening in a large city like that and how everything's razor thin margins. And so it's already very stressful. And but and so, yeah, in the attempt to convey that and make it feel that way, just the way she targeted. And then there's another person, an older woman, she is kind of teasing about noise complaints and her comments about her, about how she looked really kind of sickly because she didn't eat meat. That was kind of the joke about it was like she looked protein deficient. Now, Here's the thing about most elite kind of I don't know world class renowned chefs they don't I don't think they take very kindly to vegetarian or veganism um, and I know those are, those restaurants yeah. <laughs> exist these days but I think there's a certain I don't know if it's when the chef was raised or when they were taught or trained or anything but from the food media I've been exposed to there's kind of a you like have to know how to cook meat to to be called a chef kind of a vibe. <laughs> and so it's sort of, mm-hmm. you have to be, be familiar with these uh, more elemental food preparations or this really basic thing. And so I guess that's kind of her way to dig at that too, a little bit to kind of hint that like taking on a diet like that isn't maybe so noble. It's just kind of an impractical annoyance sort of a thing. She also yeah. remember the scene in Greece or when she's trying to des- design her restaurant, she does talk about how, she she wants to give people choice, but also her ideal food experience is sort of being guided and sort of told, like, here's what we make. It's really mm-hmm. great. You're just going to enjoy it. I mean, that's that that is a dietless experience. And there are other lines in there where she kind of singles out people that have certain preferences or diets or really limited kind of palates or ways they want to eat. And I just don't think her imagination with food, I think it's messier and more all encompassing and just sort of. It's just sort of a, an enjambment of everything or something on her plate. Mm-hmm. So I just don't think. It yeah, fits. she definitely the the she seems to have like an issue with like what she would deem as like hoity-toity, and so like yeah, allergies yeah. and all that other stuff too, which is another quote that I pulled up. Um, yeah, go for it. <clears throat> that's all like to deal with like just being completely disconnected with like nature and being. Um, just not your true self and like coming up with excuses to, to do whatever. So I'm not surprised that she would, that she made that joke about the old lady being protein deficient. Cause I was like, of course. I mean, she's, I mean, the first scene we see is about like, she's 11 and she, and she's talking about like lamb skewered over a pit. So like, (laughs) yeah. No, completely. That's uh, that's my make it stop. Do you want to give yours too? We can start with the negative ones today. Although I don't, I don't find yeah. our critiques ever too negative. But that's, I guess, that's how we'll frame it. Yeah, my make it stop is the non transitions. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have an example from page one thirty five. One guy suggested earnestly that we run the same menu as the as a busy and popular neighboring spot and hope for their overflow. Finally, I locked the door from the inside. Very next paragraph begins with. I don't have an ounce of what typically matters, but I had all that, and I wanted to bring all of it, every last detail of it, the old goat herder, dot, dot, dot. So she goes from talking about, like, New York, and, like, these people popping their heads in, and it's, like, several examples of that. And then the next paragraph is a reference, not even, she doesn't even say, she says, I didn't have an ounce of what typically matters, but I had all that. It's like, all that what? Yeah. (laughs) And you have to actually go back four paragraphs previous in order to make that connection with that reference. So that's just one example of the non-transition, but it is like her, the way that she has organized her thoughts and stuff, it's like a jumble. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways. And perhaps that's, you know, a stylistic choice. Um, but I find that it makes me 
it pulls me out of the reading sometimes and I have to be like, oh, okay, wait, hold on. What is she talking? Okay, okay, now I get it. The non-chronology so, of it can be, yes, I too stopped it a few more than a few moments in the first half so far and have had to reread or at least i think in that case it's just that pronoun is just dangling in a way where you're like wait what a yeah. pronoun from when <laughs> what that is, yeah no and her tendency is to kind of when she goes on these digressions um they can be rather long-winded descriptive they're almost like little chapters inside of the chapter if that makes sense and so yeah mm-hmm. it's kind of when she eventually wants to connect all the threads at the end i agree it's been jolting a couple of times now I'll immediately segue this into we're really vibing today. I'm going to do my please continue then because it's the same thing but modified. I want her to continue the food inspirations across the timeline with the caveat that you nailed, but make it more explicit and maybe a little quicker. I think the time she did it best was in Europe between the hostel hopping and then also when she has to rely on the kindness of the strangers in France and Greece and stays with those people because I think that was the fastest she had made a connection from the past to present because then she yeah. immediately segues those into and that that's how I want to be that's what I want to evoke in my restaurant how I designed my restaurant and even though I didn't know I didn't have any business acumen I had this knowledge of what food can do so I thought that especially the Greece stuff the restaurant she admired, right, with the with the woman, the restaurant, how it kind of, you know, when it ran out, it ran out. It had simple ingredients that were harvested fresh and simply that, you know, there's lessons about you don't have to refrigerate things in France. She has the texture of like the lettuce and the cheese and how the flavors all kind of pop differently, right, when it hasn't been refrigerated. She, she learns all these things and then, of course, wants to use that knowledge. I think when it's connected more f- quickly, I guess, I found it to really work. But yeah, there are certainly some lessons that take a bit more of a circuitous, like curly Q type of route <laughs> to to get mm-hmm. there. At least it did in my connections, it did anyway. And I thought maybe I'll, I'll just, I'm not going to read much of it, but on 129, there's a part when she's starving in Europe and that's part of her experience there is kind of going from eating to starving is sort of the vibe. And she talks about how hunger was not general ever for just something, anything to eat. My hunger grew so specific that I could name every corner and fold of it. Salty, warm, brothy, starchy, fatty, sweet, clean and crunchy, crisp and watery and so on. And she is, and I think in that list is really beautifully demonstrates all that food can do. Even if we don't, I think food's something people don't always know why it's working. They just know what they like. (laughs) And so I guess that's true for a lot of things in life. But anyway, so I think that that sort of simplicity when she, those things she realized simply when she was starving and how she wants to work that into the restaurant, I think, yeah, I thought that was all pretty beautifully said. I just Mm -hmm. want more of the connections to be, I guess, more quick and more direct, I suppose. I, I agree. So the the non-transitions, like the non-chronological order doesn't necessarily bother me as long as I can see the connections. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And the quick, the more quickly they, they come, the more I appreciate it and like can actually f- like just take the time to really revel in those descriptions because my please continue is the food references in the descriptions. Oh, yeah. I think that she does a wonderful job with describing how food has impacted her life and, and like how hunger, especially in starvation, the, the quote that you pulled up yeah. and which I also pulled up in, um, in my quotes, it's, it's all like really important in how she has formed her opinions right. and who she is as a person. And I, and I love all of that. And when I can see how, when she pulls the thread of like how food has like formed her as a person through her life. I love that. It's, it's the, it's when I can't see that connection that I'm just like, what 
is even going on right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think the childhood part to that opening salvo chapter or whatever was very evocative mm-hmm. and effective too because it just showed yeah. how I keep saying the word elemental but I think that's it, it is, I do mean that in the most basic earthy sense where it's just she yeah. grew up around food in a very simple way there wasn't you know they prepared things that maybe would seem extravagant to others but in their preparations really aren't you know you don't have to do extreme sauces and use a thousand dishes to do the things they were doing you just have to know some food basics and do them well and just appreciate food and kind of maybe it's a simpler form in a way. And so, yeah, no, I, the food stuff in this has been phenomenal reading about it with the way she evokes certain things. I, and those, again, the, the France and Greece episodes, I think were the most, uh, where I felt it the most. And then again, for having her and then having her connect it right away to her restaurant, I thought really worked for me. Yeah. Did you find it odd structurally that we did that whole, we do her whole catering career and then go back to Europe because that's out of time or out of chronology. Yeah. I, again, a decision like that, I also didn't dislike it either, but there's some language maybe at times missing for me where I just need it to be a touch, touch clearer. But, you know, when eventually you know what she's doing, so you just kind of go along for the ride, right? I, it doesn't bother right. me either. I, I don't know if I love it more than the other option or something, but this is, it's been fine the way it is once you know what she's doing. Yeah, I think she was trying to, because with the catering, it's the opposite of how she actually wants to cook, Mm because it's, like, highly stylized, but no real cooking, right? She keeps making the comment that there's no real cooking going on. Right, right. um, And and it might look good, but it doesn't necessarily taste good. Right, right. Um, So I, I get that, but yeah... Like, it doesn't bother me as much because I was like, okay, so it's like it's a direct contrast to both her childhood and to her own restaurant. So it's like wedged right in between those two big, like, yes, this is my go-to idea for food. And then we've got the catering, which is the no-nos for that. Right, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's the chronological thing at first. It like, And when we went back to the, the Europe trip, I was like, because I made a note when she first mentioned that she was in Europe. I was like, well, where's that? Yeah. And yeah. then like three chapters later, we get it. And I was like, oh, there it is. <laughs> and at this point, her in and out of college lifestyle, which I'll probably comment on in the next section. But when she did the Europe trip, I was so baffled because I knew she'd been to and dropped out of at least maybe three colleges at that point. So I was just like, yeah. okay, is this after one of those? Is this like, did you? do this after working at your hometown restaurants and then before you went to college you decided to do this trek but it's a long trip she intended to travel for i think a year or two years or something so going all around the world i think she comments she doesn't describe india at length there's a couple lines in there about her time in india but she mentions india and i think some southeastern asian countries too maybe thailand or vietnam i I can't quite remember it now but yeah thailand yeah yeah so there are other mostly it's the greece and france those are the longer detours so i think we've we've kind of jumped ahead to this anyway, but I'll formally introduce it. We like to do during the nonfiction book clubs something called cocktail party quotes, where we read a quote from the book. I think we pulled three each that we think is meaningful or represents something important that crucially could make for a decent cocktail party conversation something that has kind of a jumping off point, maybe something that can be discussed, elaborated upon, or just raises some mm-hmm. interesting questions. So did you, you already threw one out there, right? Which one was it? So we, we kind of like skirted around one of them, but the other one that you brought up in your, uh, please continue is, uh, my yeah. hunger grew from page 129. My hunger grew so specific. I could name every corner and fold of it. Yeah. yeah. So that one, I, I really loved that one because it, I think is, is a is a wonderful metaphor and it shows that like her creative writing class is definitely like sunk in. <laughs> 
Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. Despite her reluctance yeah. and kind of loathing even of him. <laughs> um, but I thought that that was wonderful because it also shows her... Because um, later she goes on to talk about, like, people say they're hungry, but they don't know true hunger like I did mm-hmm. um, during that time. And it just, I think it helps to uh, highlight, I think, her her distaste for people who are super mm-hmm. picky about their foods. Because she's like, you know, there are a lot of people out there who would love to eat, like, whatever they can get their hands on. And they don't have mm-hmm. allergies. Yeah. They don't think about allergies. They don't think about diet fads and stuff like that. Um, so I think that that's uh, an interesting like take on why she's kind of looks down on that. And I, I just love the the description and the idea of of this hunger as something that she can almost visualize because she lived through it. Um, I think that it was mm-hmm. a wonderful wonderful quote. Yeah, yeah, she and Ka- and I think that whole detour in Europe reveals a lot about her yeah. personal tastes and kind of philosophies and everything. But yeah, and maybe none more so than, I mean, and at that point she already ha- had kind of run wild and had had a pretty ragged parts of her childhood and upbringing up to that point. Mm-hmm. Already kind of pretty ragged. She was involved in a high level crime ring. Yep. <laughs> so at that point, it was already you know there'd already been some pretty significant things that have shaped her. But yeah, that her kind of stomping around Europe in a impoverished state of sorts just having to rely on the kindness of others for some reason i don't know why of all the things if you ask me to remember one food description or just food from the book other than the opening scene with the roast and the beer in the creek and all that stuff i thought that scene was so potent but other than that i don't know why when the greek man made mixed milk was it milk, honey, and apples and blended it into kind of, I assume what ended up being kind of smoothie-ish. That just sounded so good to me. I don't know why I've never done that. I've never seen just apples and milk blended together. I mean, I know milk and honey is a common thing, but that for some reason, when that description was read, and I know she was coming off of these starvation periods, it also just sounded very cold and refreshing. Yeah. Um, That's the drink I'm going to be making actually for this book for the Instagram. Yeah. Fantastic put it on the instagram we got i gotta start i don't know how i've not we gotta start plugging that one too well (laughs) yeah i'll put that in the description but yeah no that sounded i think i'm just such a sucker for cold drinks also when she describes her it's like a protein drink when she's working the line Mm -hmm. the super hot egg egg station she drinks that and then she drinks like an ice cold coke and it kind of like it almost creates like a black hole in her mouth or something. I forget the description, but <laughs> yeah. it sort of like sucks in all of her energy or whatever. Uh, yeah, th- there's nothing more potent to me in the senses than a really cold drink when you feel hot. I I am such a sucker for that. I love just the uh, most ice cold drinks. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Okay, I'll give one of my quotes here. It's from the, let's just talk about the lamb party. I think the descriptions of the kind of rambunctious free childhood that she had, her upbringing, especially since the book opens on it, which, you know, chronologically it should, but it also sets the right kind of tone and attitude and reveals, you know, when when you're raised this way, I think you're going to end up having certain individualistic proclivities and stuff. And so there's so many quotes between five and six or six and seven that I could pull, Mm -hmm. but I think I'll, I'll mention this one or pull this one. We spent all of our time out of doors and in mud suits, snow suits or bare feet, depending on the weather, even in nature running around in the benign woods and hedges and streams, diving in and out of tall grasses and brambles, playing a nighttime game that involved dodging the oncoming headlights of an approaching occasional car, bombing the red shell rocks down the stream from the narrow bridge near our driveway to watch them shatter. We found rough and not innocent pastimes. We trespassed, drag raced, smoked, burgled, and vandalized. We got ringworm, broken bones, tetanus, concussions, stitches, and ivy poisoning. 
And it, I don't know, it it was not a childhood that was 100% similar to mine, but I, I did also grow up right on the edge of the, you know, burgeoning internet and, I don't know, electronic hobbies, gaming, TV, all that stuff. So I, I have fond memories of a outdoor-based, pretty loose, biking around, find yourself in the woods doing not much, <laughs> hitting stuff with sticks just because for some reason, mm-hmm. and just playing swords in the, you know, with sticks in the woods or whatever. And it it did connect with me in that level where I, definitely not to her extent, I don't think, was I cut loose. Actually, I, I'm certain I wasn't. But there is a certain wildness that comes through, which I appreciated. Then again, I think informs some of the other parts of the story as well. I'll also just mention reason I think this makes for good cocktail party discussion. First of all, parenting, right? Who doesn't want to talk about the perils of parenting and what you should do or not do with your kids? Yeah. <laughs> That's uh talk about hot topics to bring up to with strangers or, you know, new acquaintances. Gosh, what a fun one. Yeah. But I will say on this in this regard though, because there's some you know, you could say infinite things about parenting and I think the publishing industry has, right? How many books are how many publishing books are there about or published books are there about parenting? Infinite. Anyway, I have seen some things, and I Googled this before we started just because I didn't want to speak out of turn or misremember. It's the Atlantic, the publication, the newspaper, or the uh, magazine. They have done a couple things over the years about kind of the values of not or uh, self-directed kid play and kind of like free-roaming play, unstructured playtime for kids. And, and you know, they, they're kind of they've tried to promote the values of that and kind of getting your kids away from structured activities and you're managing all their time for them and all that stuff. And I guess, I just think that that makes for a fascinating chat and you can compare childhoods against this one. So clearly because hers is so extreme, it's really easy to contrast it against others and see what comes out. Right. So I think that would be for a good talking point, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Her, her upbringing is definitely was entertaining to read about and also like gave me like, some anxiety for when my own daughter, like, like mm-hmm. when she starts yeah, growing yeah. up, I'm just like, <gasps> but right. yeah, it was, it was definitely interesting. And what a, and what a great way to describe her childhood to explain like the way that she um, thinks and feels about specifically food and also her, her complicated relationship with her parents too. So. Yeah, yeah, and the way the parents kind of, I mean, they enter so fiercely and then they kind of fade away. Yeah. I don't I think there's a section in here that talks about how she doesn't have a relationship with her parents in her adult life or something, yeah. but they I mean, they dominate the early parts of it and which is, you know, in a memoir, those are the earliest influences really, so it's important to get that out there. Yeah. But yeah, I just and the the way that her the kind of rambunctiousness of her childhood, which I, I would read as directly bleeds into the crime ring. She in a way joins and the cocaine she's doing. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, those, those things seemed at least in part to me somewhat connected, not entirely of course, but there's also the parental abandonment to that whole thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> what about you for cocktail party quotes? I know I have two others. I'm sure you do too. Yeah. Um, so we mentioned briefly, you mentioned about, um, the being in college and in and, and the the scene where the girl reads about the hands um i also pulled a quote mm-hmm. from that particular scene as well from page 104 the reader reads aloud with a sing song up then down then down again cadence my mood shifts from merely reluctant to derisive it's a tired reading style i'm sick of it it attaches more importance to the words than the words themselves as they've been arranged could possibly sustain and it gives poets and poetry a bad name she still thinks writing is about self-expression so i pulled that because i thought that was really interesting that she's making the case she's saying that writing 
by saying that the the author that she is looking down on um, thinks that writing is about self-expression, but she does not, obviously. So then that means Gabriel Hamilton does not believe that writing is about self-expression. So what is writing about then? The truth of food, I suppose. <laughs> the The kind of fundamental human truths no i don't i mean if you ever publish a memoir and then say writing is not about self-expression then i fundamentally don't understand (laughs) what your project was i mean there's what what memoir i'm sure there is one i'm sure there's some experimental or odd memoir out there where it's like oh this memoir is not meant to be you know it's like a represents a movement or a time period maybe or something and maybe she argues that this is more a philosophy about how to cook or how to think about food as part of life instead of a memoir, but come on. I mean, that's, that's a fundamentally untrue thing, (laughs) right? Right. And, and and if it is just like a guide to how to cook and how to create an uh, appreciation for like the, the natural way to prepare food, then she could write a recipe book. She could write a nonfiction essay piece that focuses on that, not a memoir. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting. And it also, like, when I read that line, I was like, then what is her purpose? So, like, now as I'm reading, I'm struggling now <laughs> to to figure out what yeah, her purpose yeah. is in writing this memoir than if it's not a form of self-expression. So that's something that's in the back of my mind as I continue to read. And it would be hard to say, because of the way her sentences like to digress, and she she does the dash list yeah. a, a lot. Mm-hmm. That's one of her favorite little style flourishes, which I always think of is an, an inherently poetic move, especially how like um, the, how digressive that can be at times, too, and elaborative and everything. It lets her bleed in a lot of imagery and a lot of language and stuff. So anyway, I, it could be described as poetic, I think, pretty fairly, mm-hmm. her language. Now, I will... I, that was her time at that program, which I, we can't go on without saying in terms of cocktail party discussion, the way she gets into and out of elite colleges in this book is the most confounding and infuriating <laughs> part of the whole book. Yeah. I think it's truly maddening to read how much college expectations must have changed in the last however many, because she must have been going to schools like in the 70s, 80s, I think, yeah. for the most part. Maybe maybe that was in the 90s, but yeah, it's just to get into NYU so casually, then leave, then of course, like Michigan's a really nice, pretty elite school too. But anyway, so th- that whole thing is in the background and kind of is this to me a bit of annoyance where i'm like wow that's okay but fair enough fair (laughs) enough she did it and she can clearly write really well so it's you know no lack of talent but i there were parts in that that i found so frustrating to read as someone who i really enjoyed my time studying in in that formal way being it like an at an academic level of english study but you know there were parts of it too where i agreed with her the self-importance it can kind of feel like you're generating there the sort of yeah, the elitism that creeps in in those institutions is, of course, a big part of it, too, and that, that gets tired as well. I also, I will say to this quote, just to, so I can actually zoom in on what you read from, I literally never in my life want to be at a reading aloud. I don't, that's just not how I process literature, reading, and write. Like, I love writing, I love reading, and I hate it out loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, poetry, it's like I can... I can just barely hang on enough to do it. And I know poetry should be read aloud. It's part of the form. But we can, let me connect this to a current event, right? Did you see the, from last year, the inauguration? I guess that was this year, technically. The the woman, Amanda Gorman is her name. She's a poet, I think from Yale or something. But she, she read a poem at the inauguration. Did you see that? I did not. Okay, and she well, and she just got a lot of acclaim for it, rightly so. It was a powerful poem about the promise of America and all that stuff. But there... 
poets when they read and it's kind of again just intrinsic to the form do have ways of expression and there's a verbal tick and verbal qualities that you can you know you either buy in or don't i find it very sermon-like and preachy and i and because of my memories with those things i've almost any reading out loud i bristle at i don't like it that's just my i don't want to feel that way i don't want to feel the literature that way mm-hmm. i agree with her it's, it does add another i already think the words as they're arranged are so crucially important and my brain thinks about them a lot as i process them i don't need another layer of inflection on top of that frankly i just that's just not the way my brain goes about and wants to deal with the the kind of artistry of it all. Yeah. And so I, I, I heard that and I was like, I know exactly what she means yeah. and the way that people can, the way they articulate things and the way they, what's the, anyway, the way they speak them and pronounce them. Yes, that bothers me a ton, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, I would never, ever want to go to an out. I would love if we, if I was in a program like that to exchange writing, to give feedback to whatever workshop things whatever but i never want to sit sit somewhere for 30 minutes and listen to someone read their book i literally never for me (laughs) so yeah i'm the same way i i think i the way that i ingest information too is like if if you tell me something uh, i'll probably remember it maybe but Mm -hmm. if i read it and i'm like you know paying attention as i'm reading it i will 100 percent remember uh, what I've mm-hmm, read, and yeah. I will also be able to articulate my thoughts about what I've read. But if somebody's talking to me, I can't process it the same way, and therefore I'm not I'm not able to analyze as I'm listening. So I I feel like I lose a lot more in that process. And I agree. I I the, the I included that first half of this quote because I was like, yeah, I mean, this is. I think a lot of people would agree that a lot of times, like poetry, especially like modern poetry. Um, is getting some pushback and, and people kind of like deride it because it is, it seems so like hoity toity in a lot of ways. People are like, Oh, you're a poet. It's okay. Whatever. Um, and I think it's the, the idea of like, well, it's not really saying anything. They're just, um, like, uh, (laughs) I don't want to be gross, but like almost like it's like kind of masturbation for the, the poet in a lot of ways. Right. It's like, Oh, I'm Mm -hmm. so amazing. And like, it's so feel good for me. And I don't care about other, um, the people who are experiencing this either. Um, not to say that that's true because we, like when we read, um, don't call us dead by Denez Smith. Mm -hmm. Wonderful amazing poetry definitely for me as long as i'm mm-hmm. reading it yeah it, it goes well but, for me but yeah I, I maybe this is i understand her point of view well maybe this is my own cloistered sheltered emotional inner life or something but did you ever look up there was one of those poems that was just a big block of text that i saw that they right them or they them, yeah. yeah them read sorry I, I forgot about the um that person's pronouns but anyway th- when they read it did you ever watch that youtube video i mentioned it in that episode yeah you mentioned so it and i, I have it not had a chance to watch that video it, it adds inarguably a ton to that poem and i again i just bristle why i just cannot watch it for a sustained period i it, even that it's just the intensity of it the emotion that can get imbued it's all there i understand what it's doing i just don't Maybe it's because it's too in your face with some of the way that these inflections come out and some of the way poets want to it, maybe it's all too heightened or something, mm. you know, I, something about it just, which is really strange, especially in that we don't have time to unpack this now. Final thing I'll say on this point is I, I love music and some of the music I really love is pretty intense too. 
And so I just don't know why it happens with poetry this way. I have this reaction to it, but I did sympathize with her feeling uh, about that in her program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just not not for me at all. I'd rather, you know, when an author comes around and I, I, you know, do your book events, get paid, do all that stuff. That's fantastic. Promote the books. But I just would rather I would never want to go to a reading, go to a Q&A. Authors are, you know, they have opinions. They had an experience writing the book. I'd rather just hear them talk about yeah. it than read from the book. So anyway. I'll do um I'll do another cocktail party quote a brief one though I don't I won't have near as much to say because I've already alluded to this her partying lifestyle in New York that whole episode <laughs> there's so much to say about mm-hmm. it but there was a quote here when she talked about just the the how they're doing this cheating ring in terms of the finances they're taking all this money um, it talks about she mishandled a lot of those things in the first years but nothing more so than her and this is her mother her evident inability to shield us from her significant fury at my father i bought a stereo and got a macy's credit card i flew to aspen and went skiing i took home more more than ninety thousand dollars that year and spent most of it on drugs just an incredible throwaway sentence at the end of that paragraph yeah. <laughs> it's man hearing that i it was exclamation points exploding in my mind <laughs> about how she could have financed all of her college misadventures with that money. Now, I guess, again, she spent most of it on drugs, partying, lifestyle in that early in those early years. But that whole operation, her part in it, the way – yeah, I don't even know what the cocktail party discussion would be about. I guess kind of teenage or young adult mishaps, misadventures, and mistakes. But it, it does bring home this point, which is I guess nothing is truly unrecoverable in the human experience. I, she lucked out enormously by not going to prison. That would have changed his yeah. memoir a ton. <laughs> and I, her life probably wouldn't have gone off on the trajectory it did had that happened. So in that case, she lucked out. Good to have a brother in finance, I guess. No, good to know elite people who can help you. <laughs> but I yeah, that whole episode shocked me. It, I did not see it going perhaps that direction, though it was clear coming out of the childhood segments that she... She was headed for kind of a rambunctious life, I think. But I don't know. That whole episode, the extravagance of it did surprise me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When it's, and when she said 90,000, I was like, that's, that's like a lot of money nowadays. But back then, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's just blind robbery. I think it did say it was going to be a grand larceny charge if it had gone through or something. It was, yeah, enough to, and, you know, everyone was in on the take, right? So who knows if they would have uncovered the, the entire root system of it, who knows what they would have found, how much, but I don't have much to say about it other than I felt if we had to pick quotes, I just felt obliged to that. One of my strongest reactions in the whole book was from that segment. So it just in terms of personal shock, I think. Yeah, me too. And we already mentioned the college parts. So yeah. Um, any other cocktail party quotes for you? What else? Yeah. Um, I also uh, pulled a quote from page 82. Um, they had cleverly developed allergies. I believe she put allergies in quotation marks. To the foods they had seen their own mothers fearing and loathing as diet fads pass through their homes. I could have strangled their mothers for saddling these girls with the idea that food is an enemy. Some of them only eight years old and already weird about wanting a piece of bread. And I would have liked to bludgeon them, too, for forcing me to participate in their young daughter's fucked up relationship with food. Mm -hmm. So here, I, I pull this because this is where the aggression that we had talked about before, that's where I can really... That's why I said, like, the word aggressive is actually appropriate, I think, for some of her tone. Yeah, yeah, um, that's true. Not to say that she herself is aggressive. But, right. yeah, here, is, and, and it also, like, highlights how how she views other people's relationship with food as being unnatural and, and false. 
in a lot of ways, which mm-hmm. just goes yeah. to emphasize her own relationship with like the natural way to um, uh, create foods and the natural way to, you know, appreciate food and stuff like that. So I thought that was really interesting. And um, yeah. It's yeah. And I think we already talked about how she kind of approaches those kind of people who maybe their palates don't line up with hers or just the way they want to experience food doesn't line up. And yeah, I mean, she's clearly on the aggressive in her writing style. She can come off as kind of, you know, a bit hostile towards them or something and maybe even dismissive at times, which I think, yeah, we've talked about how that works maybe doesn't at times too, but I think at this point is well taken and it's, yeah, of all the of all the kind of points that she went on and food opinions she's expressed in that way. Yeah, I agree with you. This is probably the one I nodded the most at. Mm-hmm. And there are certainly, yeah, everyone has just such a different journey in relationship to how they want to eat and what food means to them, how it, <laughs> the function it has in their lives. I think I'll go back to a point I made earlier with this quote and just bring this up again, but it's, it is one of those things in our life that I think can become one of the most common but passive things where it's we don't even really understand why we like the things we like or how we consume them or how that came to be or something. It's one of the it ha- food in many people's lives has to be one of the most common experiences that you don't reflect on, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, again, can't speak for everyone. I myself cook a lot and I know you you come at least your family certainly does. I am pretty sure you cook a lot, too, from what I know. Yeah. And so I feel like I've honed in on that part of my life maybe but even still learning things about myself through it but yeah i just a lot of people i think are their postmates into the door every day and they don't even know why or something you know they're just kind of i don't know experiencing food in that passive way yeah the the whole movement towards having your food delivered in a box and you cook it without any kind of yeah yeah i I find that really fascinating because i have zero interest in doing that for myself And some people really loathe the grocery store experience, kind of going through the aisles and combing through and putting things together, making lists and doing all that stuff. I I will say I don't love the grocery store experience, um, maybe COVID style. Yeah. (laughs) Although actually now that I'm vaccinated, I think it's great because it's people keep stay away from you and it's pretty quiet. (laughs) It's pretty, you know, that I I like that. Let's keep that going. But you know, in the early days, it was rather stressful. I was trying to, I was at some point I had the circuit that I like to run through the grocery store and I was timing myself too. I was like, I can't be in there longer than 15 minutes. Like I can do this, (laughs) (laughs) you know, just COVID paranoia stuff, all the, all the fun stuff. But yeah, some people really hate that too. They don't like, they don't like the uh, planning or prep. And so the meal kit is such a, a kind of an ingenious in between where you don't have to feel the guilt and passivity of um, passivity of doing delivery, but then so it's like you know you're in some control, but then also you don't have to portion things and actually plan. That is kind of the maddening thing of being an at home cook, I guess. It's like well. I, it says I need one pound of mushrooms, but they only sell two pounds. Like, what am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, which I think inspires some people to get creative and then others, it just makes them mad <laughs> that they're going to throw it away. So anyway, <laughs> food tangents, but but this is the book for that. I'll give my final cocktail party quote then. It's from page 90. One Another kind of scene we didn't remark upon much here, but I did really enjoy her time at the summer camp, cooking all the bland food for all the kids, except for the one who wanted the vinaigrette mm-hmm. or whatever. The one girl who asked for basil and the pasta sauce yeah, or yeah. whatever the quote was. So I enjoyed that connection, but it's when the counselors murder her lobsters. Mm-hmm. And so murder is the, the correct the, word as well. <laughs> yeah, because they were alive, just sleeping. And so they're and now they're dead. So, yeah, murder. she was going to murder them. But then they did instead <laughs> yeah. in the wrong way. But it concludes with a paragraph. 
After burying the 30 dead lobsters in a little grave I dug between the arts barn and the soccer field, I shut down the kitchen for the season and let the screen door slam behind me. I drove north to Pittsfield, then I bought 10 boxes of Kentucky Fried Chicken, left it at the fire pit, and then I drove off campus for good. Heading down 91, making my way back to the city, to the west side warehouse kitchens, to what I was starting to think would be another 20 years of everyday life, I hoped the bear would find the KFC and the counselors and eat them both. (laughs) There's just so much in this quote that it embodies her style. Mm -hmm. There, there's the ending, which of course is is kind of hostile yeah. and and you know shows her frustrations in that way, and she kind of lashes out with that quote. But it also shows kind of her view of what I believe commercialized, industrialized fast food is, which is just sort of it's something to be dumped somewhere thoughtlessly. <laughs> it's a total careless gesture of almost hate and scorn. It's something you do for someone when you want to show them you don't like them or or you're mad right. or you know frustrated at them, rather than something. Because I, you know, I could see people thinking of fast food in the opposite way. It's often a treat, right, for people growing up that can be treated as a reward mm-hmm. and something just be enjoyed and sort of you get excited going to the Golden Arches. But in her case, you know, given her history with food, it's sort of this insult move, which I thought was pretty, you know, symbolic and everything. But then also, it's it's all married against that opening, which is sentimental. She buries them. It's just such an oddly sentimental move, but feels very fitting for this memoir. How she she can develop these deep emotional bonds connections to the way she wants to prepare things and the way she wants people to respond to her food and cooking and everything so i just that whole paragraph kind of had a little world inside of it for me in terms of her style yeah and and the the burial too for me was important because it showed that it was like um her whole idea of how she was going to cook it but it was the way that she was going to cook it was a way that would be when you cook the lobster you're actually like, you know, just warming him up. So she, he falls asleep and he dies in that way. But the way that the, mm-hmm. the campers had killed these lobsters is they suffocated to death and they were very right, aware right. of their own death. And so it was yeah. like the complete ignorance and what she viewed as complete disrespect of these lobsters yeah. and the and the food that they were going to be given from the lobsters. And it just shows, um, it, it highlights how these young kids, they just have no appreciation for and no understanding for how food is prepared. And there's there's that disconnect with like the natural state of things. And it, if they had the knowledge mm-hmm. of, you know, how lobsters, you know, what they need and don't need, then they would not have so mistreated these lobsters. So right, it was right. yeah. and and also the ignorance. scene in the scene she mentioned the black bear, which I was like, okay, there it is, because in like three pages prior to that, we she had ta- like mentioned s- smelling the bear coming, yes, and then right. nothing, <laughs> and I was like, what what was that scene for? And it was just there the to connect it to that, so. <laughs> The turkey's a bit too. She interjects that to kind of highlight that she's a young woman alone in the woods and just kind of has that basic, you know, it's that some, I don't know if this is movies put this fear into us or something, but it's, you know, the alone in the woods fear of attack. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody can come from anywhere and some drifter, I think she mentions off the highway. But yeah, there's a couple of, it, it is kind of mood setting and just sort of a bit of setting setting but yeah that one came back around i don't know if the turkeys as much did but (laughs) yeah that one at least gets a gets a reference again yeah no and i think too it's just the the treatment of fast food and the way of course in her life it's not been you know a prominent part of it it's that that scene i thought was pretty fitting and kind of sums up her own food philosophies did you find that the this is a question about that scene 
Did you find that little stylistic diversion where she makes up a conversation between the stone counselors? Like, again, that's another scene where I thought, I I think it was her way of sort of teasing, maybe something harsher than teasing them and their ignorance, their kind of sloppy teenage selfishness or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it just wasn't that biting. That was another one of those examples I brought up earlier about just kind of, I think I know the tone here that's the register it's trying to achieve. But it just felt kind of limp to me. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you enjoyed that or something. Anytime that there's dialogue in a memoir or some or a biography or an, or an autobiography, I'm immediately skeptical. <laughs> so Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> Only David Sedaris who writes down what he did every day. I believe his. Even though I don't want to believe it because you're right. Sometimes it all feels too perfect, doesn't it? It's all too tidy. Yeah. But in that case, she, she was imagining it, though. She said that. Yeah, She's yeah. like, I could imagine what happened. I, I think I know what happened. Right. And I just thought, like, this is, you know, when you're doing a flight of imagination like that, it's clearly for a strong effect. And, it, yeah, the critical part of that, I just felt, yeah, neutrally about. It just wasn't, I don't know, wasn't as biting as maybe I thought it would be. Yeah, something. it was unnecessary, especially, like, she provided um, a couple of scenes beforehand of the the campers anyway and i think the horrific death scene that she described of the lobsters was enough for me to understand like their carelessness so as as befits the memoir the description of their final moments they're drowning the butcher of you know the butchering of them that i thought was very evocative and really intense and i as soon as you know you see the one on the ground she like opens the door in the morning there's one out it you know your heart sinks and that was such a great well done moment but yeah and then to have that other layer on there it does feel like this memoir often has that right it's the the food stuff is i think at every turn so beautifully done and really intense but then yeah some of the other the kind of frills of it or the the stylistic maybe frills of this are eh, not always working for me as much but that's a good scene to demonstrate that too yeah for sure we'll close out here any final thoughts on blood bones and butter the first half anyway uh nope i'm good Okay. Yeah, I've I've enjoyed it a lot. I the tone of it shouldn't have surprised me as much as it did the whole approach because I chefs have that reputation of being kind of I think hyper masculine aggressive sort of these intense people with these harsh opinions and these very loud people and at least they used to have that reputation. So, mm-hmm. you know, I guess I shouldn't have been as surprised, but yeah, I think I've really enjoyed it. Beach read in that I think I want to beach read with a, a tone this intense or at least an approach this specific. That's what I think I like about it, too. Yeah. I don't know if it's easy reading at all times, quote unquote, or friendly. It might not even be friendly reading at times <laughs> yeah. um, because of how strong her she comes across. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I've enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I've, en- I've enjoyed the read as well. Yeah, yeah. I wonder by the end of it how it will slot into your food memoir brain. Because <laughs> how many did you do for the class? Did you read like, um, quite a few? For the class, for the semester, I think we had to read uh, five or six books. Sure, yeah. Well, we'll see if it how it fits into that pantheon by the end. Let's... um. Let's close out this book club. We have been, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. We are on social media feeds on Instagram and Facebook at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word, so follow us there. We have other books coming up in order, which I'll briefly mention, um, just to get them out there and in case you want to read ahead or get books in advance, rent them from the library, whatever. The next three books we'll be doing in order are Sansei and Sensibility by Karen Tai Yamashita, The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, and then Wild in America by David M. Friedman. Wild with an E, by the way, as in Oscar Wilde, the writer, the flamboyant kind of 
Talk about iron, uh, irony-laden, acerbic kind of a person. Yeah. <laughs> That's Oscar Wilde for you. Very, very biting. Anyway, so we'll be covering those books next Friday. You can find in the feed the second part of Blood, Bones, and Butter, so expect that coming up if you're reading along with us. Come check the feed then. And as always, folks, we'll see you between the pages.